it was that kind of close-knit community where everybody looked out for everybody. We used to never lock our doors. Um, we just didn't. We didn't lock our doors because we didn't have any crime going on in the area. That was Clarice Hopkins, a community member of Eatonville, Florida. She's appearing in a short film about Eatonville by Allison Mitchell and the Eatonville Culture and Heritage Foundation. The recording is courtesy of the foundation. You'll hear more of that film soon. Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Mel Gibson's Braveheart might be familiar with the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. Well, somewhat familiar, because the movie is missing a bridge. In any event, about a year after the English invasion of Scotland in 1296, led by King Edward I, the Scots, led by a Mr. William Wallace, rose in revolt against English rule. The two sides met at Stirling Bridge, where the smaller Scottish army, led by Wallace and Andrew de Moray, outwitted and picked off thousands of English soldiers, forcing those who remained to retreat in a stunning defeat. Then there was the Great Siege of Malta. In 1565, in which the Maltese forces successfully defended the tiny island nation of Malta against the world's superpower at the time, the Ottomans, with just a fraction of the manpower that the Ottomans had. And have you heard of the British invasion of Zulu territory during the Anglo-Zulu War, including the Battle of Isandlwan, which took place in Isandlwan, South Africa, in 1879? Pardon my Zulu, it's a little rusty. Now, in just several hours, Lord Chelmsford's technologically superior forces of nearly 5,000 British soldiers, which had guns and the best of anything an army could want, were defeated by Zulu warriors who wielded only iron spears and cowhide shields. Here, Britain had suffered its greatest defeat in these colonies, while the Zulus pulled off a great victory. So, what do all of these battles have in common? Well, the underdogs are the winners. In history, this is rarely the case, but it does happen. And when I read about stories in history that involve great odds, I wonder, what makes a person or people fight for their survival and the promise of a better tomorrow when the cards seem stacked against them? I wonder how people who live on the margins of society cultivate a sense of belonging in a world that constantly communicates to them that they don't belong here and their lives have little to no value. And I've often wondered these things when researching the history of Rosewood, Florida and post-Civil War Florida. In doing so, I'm reminded of what I know about my own heritage, how African-Americans have historically been able to carve out corners of happiness, optimism, and faith in the darkest of times much like many of the world's underdogs. It seems as if these exercises in hope also fuel endurance. In fact, a 2018 Brookings Institute report by Carol Graham called 
Why Are Poor Black Americans More Optimistic Than White Ones, analyzes just that. The research, first published by the BBC, found that the United States is experiencing a rise in so-called, quote, deaths of despair, end quote, caused by issues such as opioid addiction, alcohol or drug overdose, and suicide, which in turn have driven up the overall mortality rate so that the U.S., despite being the richest country in the world, has a life expectancy that is falling, not rising. These deaths of despair, research finds, are hitting non-college educated, middle-aged white Americans particularly hard. Surprisingly, those who are most optimistic about their future are the most disadvantaged, poor Black Americans. Now here, poor is defined as a household of four earning less than $24,000 a year, about where the official poverty line lies. This cohort reported being even slightly more optimistic than rich Black Americans. Overall, the study found that poor Black people are almost three times as likely to be a point higher on the optimism scale than poor white people, and half as likely to report experiencing stress the previous day than poor white people. The reasons for this are varied and complex, but researchers found that one of them appears to be higher levels of resilience among poor minorities. For example, Black and Hispanic people are less likely to report depression or commit suicide. Now, my own anecdotal theory here as it relates to Black people is that because there's still a strong negative stigma surrounding mental health in Black communities, I suspect some Black people are not willing to admit they may be depressed or have mental health issues. But that's just based on my own personal observations and experiences. Nevertheless, researchers find that some of this may be because resilience has built up over, quote, generations of hardship, end quote, among poor Blacks and Hispanics, according to the research, and informal safety nets or support systems, such as Black churches and extended Hispanic families. It's worth noting that minority groups with the higher levels of optimism and lower levels of stress in the U.S. are in Southern states, which tend to have a, quote, historical association with racism and still have extensive poverty and poor health, end quote, according to the report. Yet, researchers note that these are also places with a strong sense of Black culture and community. Similarly, Latin Americans who report a strong sense of community and culture report higher levels of happiness than those in regions with comparable or higher incomes. Later in this episode, you'll hear from a now familiar voice on this podcast, Michigan State University English professor Julian Chambliss, who will demonstrate that the idea of town or community creation is not an exception for African Americans. It is one of the ways African Americans respond to worsening conditions like the end of slavery, Reconstruction, and the rise of Jim Crow. The idea of creating your own community because you cannot get a fair shake was actually a common response to these conditions. So that even if the circumstances under which Black people lived were not favorable, the idea of community signaled that there was strength in numbers, and that strength gave them fuel to endure in the hopes that tomorrow might be better, that they could create a better tomorrow. This hope or optimism helped them survive. After doing this for several hundred years, finding strength in informal systems of support, despite unfavorable odds, it becomes easier to understand why poor Black people have learned to be so optimistic under the most challenging of circumstances. But first, a story of underdogs who beat the odds. Edenville, Florida is known as one of the first, and some would argue it is the first, incorporated all-Black town in the United States. Like Ocoee, Florida, which we explored in the previous two episodes, it's located in Orange County. 
It stands as an example of what is possible when, despite great odds, a community pools its resources, leans on informal safety nets such as faith and strong communal ties, musters a sense of resilience that's only possible after enduring generations of hardship, and shares a collective dream of a better tomorrow. Now, according to the town's website, quote, the history of Edenville is most interesting. It was founded by three union officers, Captain Josiah Eaton, Captain Lewis Lawrence, and another officer who's unknown. Following the Civil War, these men left America to settle in South America, but during their voyage, they turned back and settled in Florida. To give a little background, at this moment in time, there were Blacks in Central Florida who'd been brought there by Seminole and Cherokee Indians. The Indians had stolen the Black slaves from many states along the coast. Over time, many of the Indians and former slaves that did not move west stayed in Central Florida. Captain Eaton and the other two officers found the land in Central Florida very inhabitable, not just for living, but for development. They developed a ran around Lake Maitland, thus giving us the city of Maitland we know today. The former slaves who stayed in Central Florida were used to help clear the lands, and a Black community popped up beside Maitland, where the workers lived. Remember, Union officers founded Maitland, so as the town developed and grew, nobody in the town thought of excluding Blacks from being town officials. Tony Taylor, a Black man, was elected as the town's first mayor, and another Black man, Joe Clark, was elected town marshal. Clark envisioned an all-Black town and was determined to make it happen. He discussed the idea with Captain Eaton and Captain Lawrence, both of which supported the idea. After a year of planning, Eaton and Lawrence bought a parcel of land adjacent to Maitland and built a church and hall for General Assembly. Shortly thereafter, in August of 1887, the town of Edenville received its charter of incorporation from Tallahassee. End quote. It should be noted that Captain Eaton and Captain Lawrence are white men, while Joseph Clark, again, is a black man. What's unique about Eatonville is that it is one of a small number of all-black towns or settlements formed after the Civil War, which still exists today. And throughout this time, it continued to exist in the Jim Crow South and beyond without disruption by violent race-based assaults, such as the ones we've explored in Ocoee and the one we'll soon explore in Rosewood. According to an article in the Orlando Sentinel titled, Historic Black towns struggle to survive. Quote, A century ago, there may have been as many as 500 Black municipalities, researchers say. Today, that number is fewer than 50. Today, some of these towns no longer have a single Black resident. Others have populations in the single digits. A few, such as Florida's Rosewood, were killed off by white mob violence shortly after they were founded. Many more were casualties of the 20th century, as residents fled for opportunities in the industrialized cities and later integrated neighborhoods, universities, and workplaces. These towns represent an important, if untold, chapter of American history, says historians. End quote. It goes on to say, quote, When you look at the way American history has been written, it is focused on blacks in urban areas, in ghettos, end quote, said Sandiata Chajua, director of the Afro-American Studies program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Quote, these towns symbolize a new initiative that Blacks could build communities and run economies and politics. That's an important fact, end quote. 
Now, the Historic Black Towns and Settlements Alliance estimates that an even greater number of Black towns and settlements existed. The organization says, quote, more than 1,200 Black settlements, enclaves, and towns were established in the United States between the late 18th and early 20th centuries. More than 500 settlements were established with the physical elements and cultural institutions in a town format. Only 50 to 60 Black towns were legally incorporated in 19 states between 1865 and 1915. These separate Black towns represented radical options when they were founded in the 19th century. They incorporated self-government and independent enterprise into streams of African-American ritual and tradition. End quote. As is the case with many of the surviving historic Black communities, on the subject of Edenville, the Orlando Sentinel article notes, quote, like other historically Black towns nationwide, Edenville is in a state of decline, plagued by poverty, political infighting, and encroaching development, end quote. Notwithstanding those unfortunate circumstances, the fact that Eatonville still stands is a victory in and of itself, considering all that has threatened its existence over the decades, which you'll learn more about soon. But first, more of that short film on Eatonville, which you heard in the beginning of this episode. It's called Eatonville, Holding On to History, again by Allison Mitchell and the Eatonville Culture and Heritage Foundation. At the time this was published, Mitchell was a Ph.D. student at the Cochrane Department of History at the University of Virginia. This video, again, is courtesy of the Edenville Culture and Heritage Foundation. Well, I heard the first verse that I got in my native village of Edenville, Florida, from George Thomas. And, and I'm going to sing, oh, I guess all the, the tune is the same. I'm going to sing verses from a whole lot. I of love the town of Edenville. This is my family's history. To be a part of a black community that was started by my ancestors. Joseph Clark was a man with a vision. He was an entrepreneur. He was innovative. He was a visionary. And to thank him and 26 other men, that's how this town got started. So I'm very, very proud of that background. Everybody was much friendly because there wasn't about five or six houses in Eatonville, in this area. Mm -hmm. Everybody looked out for each other. It was that kind of close-knit community where everybody looked out for everybody. We used to never lock our doors. Um, we just didn't. We didn't lock our doors because we didn't have any crime going on in the area. We went to church in Eatonville. We went to school in Eatonville. Yeah, we didn't go to the white schools up here in Maitland. And we walked everywhere, all my friends, not all of them, but most of my friends are from Eatonville. So that's why I say, lots came out of Eatonville and still do. Um, I think that the church 
has had a lasting, profound impact on the community. Eatonville has always been a community that went to church. They loved the Lord. We didn't have a three little churches in Eatonville. That was St. Lawrence, my church, Macedonia, and Open Door. The little church you just passed, there were the only three churches. And Macedonia and Open Door got their start right out of St. Lawrence. Originally, St. Lawrence was the first established church in Eatonville, the AME Church. Well, about six months later, uh, there were people of the Baptist denomination who actually um, met in the Methodist church. So on the first and third Sunday, the Methodists would meet in their church. And on the second and fourth Sunday, the Baptists would meet. And that tradition went on until, believe it or not, until... Um, 1987. During my time, there's only one school for the blacks, and we went to Hungerford. It's called Hungerford School, uh, where that library is now. A lot of those students stayed at my grandmother's house until the weekend because they didn't. the parents didn't have the means of getting them back home, especially if they stayed uh, for football practice or basketball practice, you know. But that was the type of community that it was. Everybody looked out for everybody. When they took our school away from us, that, I think that had the most devastating impact on this community. That dashed a lot of hope for a lot of people. And no, we're not going to, it's written, my parents told us, ask us, children, please don't sell any of this property, ever. So I've been hanging in there, you know, hanging on to it. And, uh, no, I don't want to sell nobody. No, I'm happy down here. I am peaceful and happy. I'm from one porch to the other porch. Nobody in front of me bothering me. You know, why leave? Why sell for money? I was sitting in a hotel and he came in. He said, you have a nice place. I said, thank you. He said, are you interested in selling it? I said, I'm enjoying it. So. Easy come, easy go. You know, the parents leave the property and they sell it. Well, I know what you want to do. You lay down from my bed. You bring that old bad mood. He was offering $40,000 for those houses. And I think it was my generation that was just that $40,000 looked like a million bucks. Mm First, you gotta know what your stuff is worth. You get, you have to understand the value um, of what you have, your community, and the bigger picture. And and some people, this is just my opinion. This is, some people 
value what they could put in their hand more than the heritage of the community. That's it. If you leave a property to a, a, a child, grandchild, who says, I'm never coming back there, mm-hmm. um, I get tired of paying property taxes on it. That's what they'll say. And, and you get what you get. Um, so what do you do? I want to see us buy back our community. I mean, there there's still people who definitely have a lot of pride in Eatonville, but we want even more, you know, because we are the oldest uh, incorporated municipality in the United States of America. We want people to know that. We want people to see that. I think we just have such a rich history and we need to just just make sure everybody knows about it. We need to have museums here that tell the story, to tell our story. And I think that's one of the things that's going to help us to accomplish a lot of things is we gotta tell our story. People gotta have to know about Eatonville. State University English professor Julian Chambliss on the significance of Edenville in post-Reconstruction Florida and what we can learn from Edenville when comparing it to other Black communities such as Ocoee or Rosewood, Florida. I think the establishment of Eatonville is fairly straightforward in terms of its origin story. Lewis Lawrence and Josiah Eaton are actually the founders of the neighboring community, Maitland. And when Maitland was organized, there was a, a good number of African-Americans in that community. At the time, it was actually quite difficult for African-Americans to acquire land. There was a real resistance on the part of white people to sell land to African-Americans especially in Central Florida, as the orange culture that is cultivating oranges made that that land possible. So many white people, and again, this sort of speaks to the worsening sort of economic competition and inflecting with race, were very resistant to African-Americans, selling African-Americans land, and instead they wanted African-Americans to work on their land, right? And so while there were a lot of African-Americans in Maitland, in fact, African-Americans were elected to public office in Maitland. I think the first sheriff of Maitland was an African-American, as a matter of fact. There was a desire on the part of African-Americans. And most of the stories, most of the narratives really focus on Joseph Clark, right? Like, you know, as a key figure in, in this endeavor in terms of, like, organizing a Black town. So to make this happen, Louis Lawrence, and in particular, who was a Northern industrialist, 
and Josiah Eaton actually purchased the land and worked with Clark to sell it to Black people. And a lot of the, you know, language around the founding of Eatonville, uh, especially in these early stages, where that it was going to be a kind of model community. Some of the language and the deeds, you know, stressed that the Black people who were buying this land were, you know, fine upstanding citizens. They weren't going to, like, have alcohol. They weren't going to gamble, this sort of thing. And so through these efforts of Lawrence working with Clark, they're able to sell the lots to African-Americans. Basically, Lawrence is selling the land to Clark, and Clark is in turn selling it to other African-Americans, right? So I don't know exactly the economic conversation that's going on there. I I just want to, for our listeners who may be a little confused, Lewis and Lawrence are white landowners. Right. Yes, Clark is African-American. Clark is African-American, right, exactly. What was the incentive for these white landowners to sell to African-Americans when most were not doing so? In the case of Lawrence and Eaton, Lawrence had been involved in previous, what we would call, what my colleague Scott French, who's a historian at UCF, refers to as moral capitalism, which was an effort on the part to employ minority communities in upstate New York. He apparently employed ethnic white minorities, like Irish people or something, in, in an endeavor. And for a lot of Republicans, and, and it's important to recognize these are white Republicans in the South, the idea of supporting African-Americans in an effort to be full citizens and achieve the sort of benefits of citizenship was an important part of the Republican Party's sort of outlook. And so the idea of helping African-Americans get land and therefore proving that they could be citizens was a huge part of the motivation here. It's one thing to tell former slaves, oh, well, you know, you're citizens with all the rights and privileges associated with that. But the reality is that, as you well know, as your listeners will know, in this period, this is referred to as the Nadir, right? There is a rising tide of anti-Black political and social and economic activism on the part of white supremacists. The Redeemer state governments, those governments that came into power after the official end of Reconstruction, were universally democratic, and they were in a universally anti-Black, right? So the Florida Constitution that was written in 1885-86 was a constitution that allowed for things like poll taxes, right? It was a constitution that allowed for marginalization of African Americans, right? So the goal here for these Republicans, and remember Josiah Eaton was a union officer. He had fought in the war, right? So they were committed at some level uh, to to the ideals of the union. And so the idea of allowing African-Americans to own property and the idea of owning property in the United States, of course, as, as a, a kind of right of citizenship has some very dark and dangerous connotations because, of course, this has been the driver for the dispossession and massacring and really genocidal tendency towards Native Americans. But that was a part and parcel of ideology of the period. And so by helping African-Americans acquire property and creating a town that would be a model of like African-Americans industrial, you know, industrial activity, this really is an important part of, I think, ideology that Republicans are trying to articulate at a time where many African-Americans and and many whites are being told that African-Americans aren't unable to do that, right? They're unable to be citizens. They're unable to own businesses. They're unable to govern themselves. This is why 
segregation, Jim Crow segregation is important and a good thing. So at some very basic level, by helping Clark and the other founders of Eatonville acquire land and incorporate, they're able to become a town. And in, and in fact, you know, when they incorporate, they very, very strongly are advocating to African-Americans across the country, not just simply in, in Central Florida, but across the country that Eatonville is a destination for African-Americans looking for a realization of their American dream, right? Like the first issue of the Eatonville Speaker, they have a little tagline there, solve the race problem in America, buy a home in Eatonville. So it's pretty straightforward. It's worth noting, as I often do, that in creating an all-Black town next door, they also segregate, (laughs) in a significant way, remove Black people from Maitland, right? At a time where you have a rise in tide of anti-Black feeling, right? So if they didn't create the town of Eatonville, there would be a bunch of African-Americans who were voting in Maitland. So by creating a town of Eatonville or helping them create a town of Eatonville, you move a bunch of basically industrious Black people into their own town. And they are industrious and they prosper, right? So there's ways that you can read the story where it's not quite so positive, but there is clearly a kind of politics of republicanism and racial alliances across within the Republican Party that are driving this at a time where increasingly the pressure on African-Americans in terms of the public sphere is worsening. I interpret it as a matter of survival, right? Like the opportunities that you can have in an all-Black town at that time, even if it was segregated from the white neighboring town, were probably far greater than those you might have in a segregated town where there are white and black people. But, you know, it's important to recognize that a lot of the the things that are constricting African-American voting, right? No one thing works, right? Like I always like to point this out to students because you think, oh, the grandfather clause. Well, not all black people grandfather were slaves, so they can still vote. So that's why there's other things, right? Like, well, there's a poll tax. Well, there are Black people with money, so they can vote, right? Well, then there's a literary test. Well, there are Black people who can read, so they can vote, right? So it's all of them together that gets you, gets white supremacists what they're looking for, which is no Black people participate. And even when they do all that, they're still Black people who can vote, which is part of the reason why you have, like, a kind of tension in, the, like, 1920, right? That's why you have an Okoye massacre, because the Republicans are urging Black people who can vote to vote, and that small population could be pivotal in terms of shifting the election, right? And so there's there's a lot of complexity here, and as we talked about before, right, it's not like African-Americans aren't striving to participate what they're doing. They're striving to participate. Someone puts a barrier in. They try to go around that barrier. Someone puts another barrier in. They try to go around that barrier. Someone puts another barrier in. Try to go around that barrier. And then they keep doing that, and they're like, okay, fine, we're going to burn it all down to the ground, right? Like, it's not that complicated. It's just hard to hear. Right, right. So how did the understanding of the importance of voting, which you just mentioned, and education influence the desires of Eatonville's Black residents to ensure that opportunities for civic engagement and education were available to everybody who wanted to participate in them? Well, you know, Eatonville is a real model of a kind of constructionist view. I mean, that's a terminology I associate with Booker T. Washington, 
this was a town that was really heavily promoted to African-Americans. You can find newspaper stories about Eatonville appearing across the United States, places as far away as Iowa to the West and, and New York and places like that, you know, and it really captured the imagination because again, the narrative that many white people are being fed at this moment, this is a, this is a moment where what we understand to be like the lost cause is really sort of being created, right? This idea of like, you know, reconstruction was a failure. Reconstruction was a, by the time you get into the early 20th century, there's a generation of people who didn't fight in the war and only have like a kind of history that's being rewritten by white racists to understand, you know, the struggle of the mid 19th century. And so when they create Eatonville, they're creating it in opposition. And there's a reference to this in the newspaper at the time where a resident says the reason we created Eatonville was to prove there's no truth to the Democrat statement that black people can't succeed. Right. They're pretty straightforward. Like they're saying this, it ain't true. We're going to make this town and prove it ain't true. Right. And for people like Eaton and Lawrence, who as Republicans want to support the sort of African-American participation in the public sphere, they too are concerned with this sort of negative reference, right? Like many black communities in developed areas were considered, you know, the wrong side of the tracks because they're physically off on the other side of the tracks because of racist practices. But, you know, they were painted as by white residents, by white races as these dysfunctional spaces. This is a practice that continues to this very day. It's very easy for black spaces to be considered blighted and unproductive. And that stretches back to this moment, right? Like where, where there's just black people aren't successful. Black people can't rule, can't govern themselves. Black people can't do this. Black people can't do that. And what, what you look at when you see pictures of Eatonville, when you read stories about Eatonville is them like very consistently saying, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. Education was a crucial part of that. They recruited a graduate of the Tuskegee University, R.C. Calhoun, who established the Robert E. Hungerford Normal and Industrial School to teach African-Americans. That was the only school you could go to to get an education in the area beyond sort of like, you know, a basic grade school education. And it was a boarding school. They lived on campus. They built a building. They worked the fields. They learned trades. It was an important part of the town. And it was a, a major complex. And there are great archival photos of like the sawmill. They built Booker T. Washington Hall. And Mrs. Washington actually visited the location. And so it was a striving, primarily agricultural economy-based community. And here again, they were very savvy. They were farmers who sold their excess to the emerging luxury hotels in the area. And so they, they had working farms. So they could grow enough food to feed themselves. They owned the land they lived on. They would never starve. But they also sold excess crops to the, the hotels that were in the area, right? And of course, Florida was a destination that was part of the New South transformation of Florida. So there was places for them to sell the stuff that they were making, sell the food they were growing. 
and make a profit. And then that went back into the community, had a school. And they were very civically conscious and able to take advantage of that kind of New South economy, New South agricultural luxury economy in Florida. Okay, that's really helpful. And the African-Americans who initially were able to buy land from Lawrence and Eaton, they sold some of their land to other Black people moving to... Right, yeah, yeah, they subdivided the land, right? Yeah, I mean, that was part of the process, right? When we talk about how they sold the land, right? So the land goes from Clark. Clark subdivides the land and they sell it to subsequent people. And there's a good bit of subdivision of the lots, right? That's why... You know, land selling has always been one of the crucial parts of Florida economy. That had that wasn't any different at that time as well. And if you go into the county plat map, you can see like the sort of plat map that shows like Clark's addition to this thing or Clark's addition to that thing, right? So yeah, they're very very quickly able to sell it to families, and many of those families are still there. Edenville is still a community of some very distinctive families that stretch back to the founding. And that's part of the strength of their sort of civic society. It's a small town with a population of about 2,500, I think. And some of that land has been in the same family for 100 plus years, right? It's the same set of people. That's incredible. That's really incredible because we talked about this earlier, but so many of the Black towns and communities that were formed around the turn of the century, maybe a little before or after, aren't existent today. So that that makes them quite distinct. So Eatonville was created after the Civil War. It was sort of created in part out of the aspirations of African-Americans to form a community and have a sense of security, which, as you mentioned earlier, allowed them to aspire to full citizenship. So this community formed by African-Americans was run by African-Americans. How did Eatonville's creation and success influence the creation of other Black communities in Florida following the Civil War? Well, you know, this was actually a golden era this sort of 1880s period for the creation of Black communities. As we know, the Southern Homestead Act made public lands available to African-Americans back in 1866. In some ways, that that act is often considered by scholars a failure, in part because the land that was being sold wasn't that great. The African-Americans that were buying the land didn't necessarily have all the right supplies. But Arguably, in Florida, it did have, it had a significant impact in terms of like allowing African-Americans to have access to land in the North Florida in particular, and in Central Florida, I think it had an impact as well. So the creation of Eatonville is coming around the same time that you see other towns who are African-American being created in Georgia and in Alabama. Like, you know, there's a sort of, class of cities that are part of historic Black Town and Settlement Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization. So places like Hobson City in Alabama or Mount Bayou and Eatonville are all part of that. And these communities really sort of point to the fact that the idea of town creation, it's not a outlier idea for African-Americans. This is one of the ways African-Americans are responding 
to the worsening conditions that end of reconstruction, right? So one of the responses to the, the rise of Jim Crow is migration. This is why we have African-Americans that move out of the South and they go North and they go West. And remember, there's a whole huge town building movement in Oklahoma, right? The black towns of Oklahoma, we forget, but like there were numerous black towns built in Oklahoma. There was even a scheme that Oklahoma would be an all black state. The problem yeah, they, had more, they had more than 50 at right. one point. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them still there. Right. You know, African-Americans went to California. Right. African-Americans went to Texas. African-Americans also contemplated leaving the United States. Right. So going to Africa and then town building was another way they responded. Like we can't get a fair shake with white people. Let's make our own towns. The problem with town building, of course, is that Many of these communities don't go through the whole process of of getting a charter. They don't become incorporated, right? And so without incorporation, it's easy for them to be absorbed by bigger municipalities, be annexed into some other municipality. A lot of these communities are agrarian communities. These are farming communities. And so they're fairly sort of like isolated. For the most part, when you're talking about Eatonville, it's isolated. It's in Central Florida. There are not a lot of people in Florida, period. And there are not a lot of people in Central Florida, period. So, you know, it's an agrarian space that's not densely populated. And, you know, African-Americans are able to sort of carve out a space and maintain that space because they're their own municipality. And they're similar to a number of African-Americans who are managed to do the same thing. Hobson City is incorporated, right? Like, and so... For those communities that aren't incorporated, they too, though, are striving to be successful. So that idea of like creating your own community because you can't get a fair shake in the, the quote-unquote white world was, I think, a kind of common response. It was one response that always becomes a recurring sort of rhetoric, I think, in the Black experience, like, you know, kind of Black nationalist, separatist, strand remains a kind of cogent narrative within the Black experience. And Eatonville, because it was so successful, and again, when we talk about Eatonville, it was able to promote itself. And so it's it's startling sometimes to see all the newspaper stories about Eatonville and other parts of the country, because, you know, how are they able to do this? But again, in the moment, the narrative is that Black people can't do the thing they're actually doing every day, right? And then you have, you know, I think a kind of white allyship that's very invested in them being successful, right? Like you think about Lewis Lawrence and other white benefactors who, at some level, because it's all Black town, they are in fact segregated, but they're also industrious, right? Like they're part of the economic system. So in a sort of backward way, the system of racial segregation that is the Jim Crow system in the minds of some white people, they might look at Eatonville and go like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I want. I want black people to be off on their own, but also a part of the economic system. Now from the black perspective, they're like, we're safe. We're able to achieve our dreams as American citizens. I doubt very seriously though that they were like, yeah, we're never going to come back around here asking about the fact that you're, you know, systematically undercutting Black people's 
ability to be citizens. I don't think that was at all the agreement from their perspective. But from a white perspective, in some ways, especially in that moment, Eatonville might be this sort of idyllic way where that, like the pressure of dealing with Black people and their demands around citizenship are lessened because they're just not in front of you all the time, right? And, you know, you sort of fast forward to, uh, like the incident at Koei, and one of the things I remain quite sure of, one of the reasons the violent reaction was so violent was because, like, you know, you had July Perry and, and, and African-Americans with property in front of white people, and they were like, this is not how it's supposed to be. Like, I can't take that, right? You know, Edenville, in some ways, is even more a more extreme example of that, but it's far from their eyes, right? They're not going to a Black town and going, like, I don't like it, right? There's an oddity here around space and separation that we should be mindful of, both in terms of, like, romanticizing that isolation, but also recognizing the nature of what is driving that isolation, it's really important that you mentioned the charter situation and being incorporated because later on when people started seeing Black people acquiring land and wealth and also having a stronger voting presence in the electoral system, some Florida legislators would, you know, pass laws to take the charter away from some of these towns, even towns that were segregated, but integrated, integrated, but segregated, so as to take the ability away from Black people to have positions in local government. The idea of diluting the Black vote, right? So the prime example of this is two miles away in Winter Park, where they detached the Black part of town, Hannibal Square, so that Black people couldn't vote in the election, and so they lost their Black aldermen. Because Hannibal Square, or Winter Park, was incorporated around the same time as Edenville. But when they incorporated Winter Park, Hannibal Square, which was the historic Black community, was a part of the town, and they had two Black aldermen on the city government. And so... That first city government had these two Black aldermen, and they were perfectly fine because it was a Republican government, right? But the Democrats wrote away to the, the Florida legislature and said, oh, when they drew the town boundary, they drew it wrong. And so they detached Hannibal Square and redid the election, and that was the last time they elected a Black official to town government. And that was always a danger, right? That's always a danger. But again, the tools to suppress the Black vote in Florida, white-only primary, right? Black people are registered Republicans, white-only primary. So how are you going to change that? I mean, one of the really interesting things in Florida is the work of Harry T. Moore, who's very active in the 1930s and 40s, well, 1940s in particular. And he advocated African-Americans register as Democrats so they could participate in the primary. And of course, you know, he was the field secretary for the NAACP in Florida and was murdered even before Mecca Evers. People tend to think, oh, Mecca Evers is the first NAAC official murdered, but it was Harry T. Moore when he was blown up with his wife in NIMS in 1950, Christmas Day, 1950, right? So 
there's political the political struggle around voting and quite literally from an African-American perspective, people have gotten killed to vote, right? Like, it's not like a little thing. And the other part of the whole incorporated point that you made earlier, Eatonville boasts as the first incorporated Black town in America. There are other towns that also claim that distinction. Right. Uh, but Eatonville, that is one of its claim to fame. So it's yeah. important. And, and then in those other towns, I think like Hobson City claims to be the first or, you know, it's a moment where I think a lot of Black people, as I say, are responding to the challenge. Like Black people are not passive actors in the world of, of political freedom in American context, right? They're quite active actors. They help define what freedom means in the United States context, right? So I know that those arguments are quaint at some level, but what they indicate is that there is a large number of African-Americans looking to address uh, systemic injustice by engaging around uh, town building, right? Like, you know, Black towns are speculative engines. Like, these are things that are constructed by Black people to promote a better future, right? Like, like we need to do this because these people are doing X, Y, and Z. And because the system itself is being arrayed against them, they organize themselves through the creation of towns as a way to sort of like fight back against that. I think Eatonville was really interesting and unique because I feel, and I could be wrong because I'm totally an outsider, but it almost feels like they had a sense of security other Black communities didn't. Like they were able to exist without, you know, disruption to their community in the form of, you know, violence or or threats that other communities, like eventually Rosewood or Koei, you know, succumbed to. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of people didn't have that luxury back then. And, you know, they were able to sustain. First, why do you think they were able and I hate to say this, almost allowed to prosper, right? Because so many Black people weren't. And then how do you think they sustained? We know that later on, you know, the economic situation was not good, but there was no disruption, right? The way we see in other Black communities. Yeah, I, I think that the isolation of Florida is really important. I've always thought this, this this is a community in Central Florida, and Central Florida is a place that was not heavily populated, right? And so when you think about, you know, Orlando or Maitland or Winter Haven or Winter Garden or Winter Park, these are relatively small communities. And in the early part of the town existence, so like the late 19th century, early 20th century. So from founding to, I think, around 1930, this is not a heavily populated area. I really want to stress that. We're not, not talking about populations with towns with like 30, 40,000 people. There's much smaller, right? 10,000, 20,000. It's a, a kind of rural place. They own all the property. They're growing food. They're self-sustaining. A lot of the people in Eatonville work in other places. So they don't have like an outside business that's coming in small population nature of the area really helps Eatonville. Because when you look at other communities that are rural and Black, they too are able to persist. 
right? Like there are lots of little black communities in, in Alabama and Georgia because they're so in such a sort of isolated quadrant. They're primarily black places and white people don't go there, right? They don't have a reason to go there. But the places that are sort of subsumed and disappear are places where the growth of a neighboring white community pushes the boundaries and, and they basically absorb the black community and they become like a, a neighborhood within that white municipality. There's never that for Eatonville. Do you think the fact that those places weren't as isolated as perhaps in Eatonville has something to do or anything to do with the destructive end that really caused the Black people to leave or die there? I do. I think it's impossible not to recognize the nature of proximity in those sort of crucial cases, right? The the threat posed by African-Americans right next door in terms of like to the racist status quo is always much clearer when they're right there every day, right? Especially when they're owning property, they have their own stuff. They're a reminder both of African-Americans sort of rights as citizens, but also I think in some of these cases, many of these cases, their success is an injury for working class white people sometimes, right? And that injury can spark the kind of racist violence that we associate with a place like Rosewood or we associate with a place like Okoye. I mean, so many times in those cases, it goes back to Ida B. Wells, right? When she did her investigations around lynching, you know, she's like, this is not about white women. It's about economic and political power. And I think when it comes to these cases of, of violence against African-Americans, it's the same thing. But, you know, the crucial element is like the nature of the economic competition or political challenge is that they're right there, right? Like they're in the community. So with Eatonville, even though like its presence represented a, a refutation of a kind of racist ideology, they're their own thing, no matter how how well they might be doing. And by comparison, are they doing as well in terms of like the, the property value or their access to capital, the kind of things they can build versus their white counterparts? I mean, that's a question that we could delve into in various ways, but like they're not a challenge in the exact same way. Like they're an inspiration for African-Americans, but are they a challenge to the kind of like... A, a challenge or a threat. Right. Yeah. They're not a threat. Right. So, you know, that becomes like a really important, important thing. still exists today is no happenstance. Another organization that has been working for decades, not only to preserve Edenville's culture and history, but to ensure it continues to endure well into the future, is the Association to Preserve Edenville Community. Executive Director N.Y. Nathiri will explain just how hard the community has had to work to do this and why community members believe it's worth the fight.
Well, we are at our essence and historic preservation organization, which means that for us, Eatonville as a nationally significant African-American community needs to be conserved. It needs to be vibrant. And frankly, as long as the United States of America exists, Eatonville, Florida needs to exist. And given the history of our country and given the historical challenges that a community such as Eatonville represents, that's no small notion. So simply put, we want to make certain that Eatonville does not go down the trash bin of history. How did Eatonville's legacy as one of the first self-governing all-Black municipalities in the United States impact the determination and vision of some of its earliest residents for the community? What your question understands is that the people who founded Eatonville were intentional. In fact, Edenville is emblematic of what's called the race colonies movement. Dr. Everett Sly and his colleague, a cultural anthropologist, they wrote an essay for a book that I was privileged to compile and edit called Zora, Zora Neale Hurston, A Woman and Her Community. And in that compilation, we talk about the race colonies movement. So your question actually appreciates the fact that the founders of Eatonville wanted to enjoy the full privileges of citizenship in this country. And frankly, they saw the incorporation of an all-black town as being the way forward. In fact, the Eatonville Speaker, the newspaper that came out in early days, had an advertisement that said, solve the race problem. You know, build a community for yourselves. In other words, for those who may be more familiar with utopianism, in 19th century America and how it expressed itself, you could easily see the founding of the race colonies as an expression, as just an expression of that utopianism. So the short answer is the people who founded Eatonville knew exactly what they were doing. The historical record reflects that, but their intention was to enjoy full citizenship and the safety and security of governing themselves and being responsible for their security. That's pretty amazing because the whole premise of this podcast is to explore Black communities who strove for full citizenship, to realize the promise of full citizenship and sort of the obstacles that they encountered and continue to encounter today. 
So Eatonville is one of a small number of all-Black towns that was incorporated more than 100 years ago that still exists today. So what do you think helped Eatonville persist over the years despite ethnic tensions, economic challenges, and changing demographics? I want to admit to you that as I ponder how it is that Eatonville has survived, I really wonder just how it is. What the record shows is that when mainstream America does not want the community to exist, guess what? That community disappears. I mean, they destroy it. I mean, there's no fine point to it. They just destroy it. That means, you know, Tulsa. That means Rosewood. That means Okoy. That means any number. So, but what is it that has allowed this tiny little municipality of maybe 25, 2,800 people, why has it endured? I would say that there are four anchors that allow for the internal strengths, and that is faith, family, education, and civic pride. And I would say that civic pride in the last 50 years maybe even 75 years, has been the anchor that has really allowed Eatonville. In other words, Eatonville will not go quietly. It won't go gently into that good night. There's a citizen's activism that really is built into the DNA of this community. You mentioned the book Zora. Speaking of Zora, Zora Neale Hurston grew up in Eatonville. How is her legacy woven into the culture that is found in Eatonville? Well, those of us in historic preservation say that if it weren't for Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville really would not have survived. Because in November of 1987, it's really, you know, this is really quite eerie. We are having this interview Thanksgiving week. And Thanksgiving week of 1987, the Orange County Commission passed a resolution unanimously to five-lane, the two-lane highway that runs straight through what people call, quote-unquote, downtown Eatonville. I mean, really, I didn't realize that we would be talking at this point. This is really, it's really quite something. So when you understand that back in the late 1980s, Orange County, Florida was probably 88% white, maybe 10% black. Eatonville today still is known as a low socioeconomic community. And Eatonville sits today still on the largest unparcel of developed land in Orange County. This is prime real estate. And the county commission was going to, quote, unquote, do a road improvement project. You know, (laughs) that's the first thing when you want to bring in development. They passed the resolution the fall of 1987 in the holiday season because even if the people in Eatonville and the neighbors were upset, you know, it's holiday. No one's going to hold it. You know, you've got to celebrate Thanksgiving, you've got to celebrate Christmas. But, you know, we absolutely opposed it. And one of the things that some of the elders said that we could not just oppose 
we had to be able to explain the opposition. We had to develop our own plan. That was early on the two instructions that we were given. And Zora Neale Hurston, it's not an exaggeration to say that in 1987, the decision makers in Orange County didn't have a clue about Zora Neale Hurston. They never heard of her. And for them, Edenville was just a little town west of Maitland. So the point is that we determined that we needed to really explain the historic significance of Eatonville. We needed to explain that though people in Orange County may not have heard of Zora Neale Hurston, that really she, that was a following. There was a following of people who knew her and actually knew of Eatonville because she wrote so much about Eatonville. Once we developed the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities and began to draw people by the thousands, actually by the tens of thousands, to Eatonville year after year. By 1994, 1995, people were beginning to talk about cultural tourism, heritage tourism, eco-tourism. In other words, this whole niche market of tourist appeal that didn't have anything to do with attractions or the kind of, let's say, Six Flags of Georgia. We're in Central Florida, so Disney, Universal, SeaWorld. That's what you call traditional tourism. But within cultural heritage tourism, we were doing our festival before that lexicon had developed. So we were just moving right, right along. And what that meant to tie this all together is that Zora Neale Hurston, as an icon, as the flagship, really brought a kind of prominence to Eatonville that only an artist or creative could do. And so the people who in the field say, and I say field, I mean in the field of historic preservation, they say that the Zora Neale Hurston saved Eatonville. And in fact, it did take us about 20 years, but we actually did best the county. The county had to back off. Uh, the road that runs through the historic portion or section of Eatonville is still a two-lane road. And all of that, as I say, because really, Zora Neale Hurston lifted the community out of the ordinary consideration and put it in the extraordinary consideration of decision makers. So finally, what type of cultural influences characterize Eatonville? So in other words, what evidence of these cultural influences can be found in Eatonville a hundred years ago, as well as in the present day? I think that you will find that Eatonville is still a community of families. I think that the love of learning still abides within a strong segment of the community. And of course, this whole business of pride of heritage, because the Zora Neale Hurston Festival, the Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts, and in other words, all of this is palpable. On any given day, somebody's visiting Eatonville. On any given day, what that means is there's a kind of reinforcement of Eatonville's being special.
the next episode, before we delve into Rosewood, we'll explore one more incident, this time in the community of Perry, Florida, that took place in the year before the Rosewood Massacre and bore striking similarities to the demise of Rosewood. One other thing, if you're really into history, I encourage you to check out another cool history podcast called 10 American Presidents by Royfield Brown. From Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents is a podcast narrated by guest hosts. Each show is intercut with music and, where possible, archive news clips or dramatizations to set a feeling of place and time. And be sure to check out our website, www.dreamsofblackwallstreet.com, where you can get more information and subscribe to keep up to date on all of our episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.